Welcome, podcast listeners. It's the third day of the podcast takeover. This week, we're on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, where leaders from across the globe are gathered. The festival is a program of the Aspen Institute that brings together the most inspired and innovative thinkers, artists, politicians, business leaders, scientists, and others. The mission is to dive deep into a world of ideas, thought, and discussion and spark positive change. Already, we've heard illuminating thoughts and discussion. So that you can take part, I'm giving up the mic this week. A series of hosts, who are also speakers at the festival, will take over and interview Ideas Festival presenters across many disciplines. Franklin Leonard hosts the Blacklist Table Reads podcast and founded The Blacklist. It's a list of Hollywood's most popular unproduced screenplays. In this episode, Leonard interviews other presenters at the festival. He begins with Melody Barnes. She chairs the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions and Opportunity Youth Incentive Fund. From 2009 to 2012, she was assistant to the president and director of the White House Domestic Policy Council. Here is her conversation with Franklin Leonard. The thing that I wanted to talk to you about today is, you know, I obviously work in the film industry with film and television and popular culture. um, And all too rarely, I think, uh, does the industry think about its role vis-a-vis the fabric of social change in America and in the world. And I think... At the same time, we're acutely aware of the need for our content to be seen by as many people as possible. But what is the consequence of that? And how can we think about what we're doing in a way that can make the work that we're doing integral to the fabric of social change? I love this question. Thank you for asking it, Franklin. I think the arts and culture, the maker movement, artisans, can be and often are an economic engine particularly in underdeveloped, distressed communities. Uh, They also play an important role in engaging us in conversations that need to be had and making us think about things in a different way and doing it often in a way that invites everyone into a conversation that may have been, otherwise have been too scary to have or uh, too fraught to have. So I'll give you a couple of examples of that. One, I now live in Richmond, Virginia, and it's my hometown. I grew, I grew up there, and my husband and I just moved back there in mid-December. And we moved back, one, because the core of the city is starting to come back, and is very vibrant, in large part because of arts and culture. At the same time, it is a tale of two cities. Some of the highest levels of concentrated poverty on the East Coast not only exist in Richmond, but some of those housing projects sit on land that was owned by my great-grandfather. So it felt very, very personal um, to go back there. But recently, just a couple of weeks ago, Kahinde Wiley was there. I'm a huge, huge Kahinde Wiley fan. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, for people who don't know his work, it's portraiture, or some of it is portraiture, and he takes kind of the quote old masters um, and puts young people of color, typically African-American men and women, in the poses um, and in uh, the, the environment of these portraits that we all have known and seen in museums. And it calls to question for us issues about power and how people see themselves and how the world around them sees them. And watching, listening to his lecture, watching young people come into the museum, many of them who had never been in that museum I would bet before, and all of a sudden see themselves and the conversation that it has started 
um, is just one fascinating example of the role that the arts are playing. The museum is very actively and has a strategy that is saying we have to invite in communities that haven't been here and we need to reach out into a part of parts of the city where we haven't been seen or felt before. And I think that's important for way, the way in which we knit the city together. Um, the Valentine Museum, which studies, the, it is there for the purpose of studying the history of Richmond, Virginia, is actively a part of and leading community conversations in Richmond so that members of the entire community can ask critical, sensitive, difficult questions as we try to move forward and think about issues of economic advancement for the entire city. And when we look at this on a national level, it's one of the things I did in the White House, we focused on the fact that when artisans come in, when the arts come in, they start to often start to transform a community and can serve in many ways as an economic driver um, in terms of housing, places that people want to live, places where people feel now reflect um, themselves um, in a really important way. Yeah, it, it's, you're saying that sort of reminds me of yesterday's conversation between Thelma Golden and Theaster Gates, who, I mean, you talk about all of the ways in which the arts can be an engine of transformation in a city. I mean, he, I think he's represented all of them almost single-handedly. <laughs> yes. um, and the ripple effect, I think we're going to continue to see for decades. Um, I'm curious, for you, I feel like I read an interview where you talked about having grown up in Virginia um, and the ways in which what you were able to see on television sort of was also what you believed was available to you as careers. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts on the extent to which the film and television industry, again, being sort of the primary drivers of mass media, uh, have an obligation to show people what is possible. Um, it's a very open question, but... Mm -hmm. People, what people see, and particularly what children are able to see, and it may not be the person next door. Um, so television, the movies, the theater, we think about Hamilton. Um, all of a sudden, say, that's possible. I see someone who looks like me doing that, so maybe I can do that too. And then when you attach a story to it, so you not only see the person who's the actor, but you might then hear an interview, you might hear a podcast, and you realize that their background is similar to yours, and you think, oh, that's not impossible anymore. I know for so many young people, and this is a, a, a popular culture, I guess that, that it's one way of describing it, but example, for so many young people now who are six, seven, eight years old, for them, the idea of having an African-American president Yeah, I have, I have three nieces, all of whom are under the age of seven. That's all they know. Right, exactly. Um, so it's, no longer, it's right. no longer a myth or a fiction or right. some, you know, it's the norm. So all of a sudden that becomes available to them. So the fact that if we have movies and television and podcasts and all of these things are so accessible to people telling that story and providing those stories to young people and to adults, then we start to change the conversation. We start to change the way that they see themselves and their future. It's funny because I've always, I had a theory, somewhat in jest, that, that one of the major contributing factors to the Obama, to Obama getting elected in 2008 was Morgan Freeman having 
played the no, but but having played God and the president, and and it's not coincidental that just prior to his election, you had Dennis Haysbert as the president in '24, because it allowed not only you know a generation of young black people to say, oh, there can be a black president, but for you know the rest of the country to say. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it's not weird to have a black president. I see one every Monday night on 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually think that does move the needle to some extent. And, and maybe that's ultra hopeful about the role of, of, of film and television in society, but the, 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 the sequential coincidence can't be ignored. But I, I think the having that picture in your head, I mean, what we know about, and, you know, I, I was a history major, so I'm not a scientist, but what we know about the creation of neural pathways right. is that all of a sudden when we start to, when there's a different message, when there's a different picture, people start to change their, their actions. And we are bombarded with culture um, and images every day. And we certainly see and believe in the negative that is the, can be the result of that. Why wouldn't we believe in the positive? So when young people all of a sudden were going to the theater and seeing Hamilton, uh, not only A, was it an introduction to history that so many of them probably thought was boring, <laughs> exactly. but now all of a sudden it became interesting. And oh, so we had this founder. Sadly, I've only seen it once. Yeah, me too. But you know, and that's because apparently, like, Rosie McDonald keeps going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She was She's like, just goes ticket. on the weekend, like, every every single time she wants to go. No, I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> She's got our tickets. Yeah. Um, but now young people see actors um, in great number. They see a, a writer. They're introduced to the kinds, of crea- the kinds of careers that exist in the theater. And all of a sudden, that becomes available to them. Yeah. So, yes. No, I totally agree. It's funny, I, I have a number of friends uh, who are either not from the U.S. or weren't particularly interested in history, mm-hmm. who now say, for example, like they, when they think of the image of Alexander Hamilton or Angelica Schuyler or Thomas Jeff- Jefferson, like, well, no, when they think of Thomas Jefferson, they think of David Diggs. Yes, exactly. uh, which what is, a, yeah, no, but it's like, that's amazing. And, um, and, and I actually, like, that does move the needle, strangely. Mm-hmm. Now you 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 were an actress at some point. Or you were you took acting classes. <laughs> if my, I, I did see it online. I'm I'm just gonna ask about it. Sure. But I'm curious, like where did where did that come from for you? Absolutely. Uh, my husband would laugh if he were he would he would walk, roll his eyes and walk away if he heard that. I am not an actor, but I have always been interested in acting uh, and enjoy enjoy going to the theater, enjoy culture, the arts, the ability to transform. Uh, so I decided on a lark to take acting classes at the Studio Theater Acting Conservatory mm-hmm. in D.C. And I was working on the Hill. I, uh, Is this when you were in Kennedy's office? Yeah, when I started working for oh, Senator wow. Kennedy. Yeah. and When I was working for Senator Kennedy and then when I was at the Center for American Progress. And my assistant, I remember laying, saying to me later on, and she actually studied art. She was an amazing artist. Um, she said, I knew I was working for the right person when you said to me, okay, I have to leave by 645 because I've got to get to my acting class. Yeah. But I loved it, not because I have some extraordinary hidden talent. I wish I had found that. But because it taught me a lot. It, it taught me a lot that I can use in public speaking in general. But it also teach, has taught me a lot about action and reaction, being in the moment um, and responding uh, ways to engage people, ways to think about the material and examine that, how difficult it is. And I also just loved, you know, and people now have poo-pooed this left brain, right brain thing, but I loved, you know, leaving 
the analysis that was a part of my everyday work as you know chief counsel to going and exploring something very different. And in fact, what I found is that when I left class, I'd have ideas that were relevant to my work. Right. It was like I had given my brain a chance to expand and to relax in a way that new and more creative ideas would come to mind. So it served me well in that way. And I, I, now when I watch the theater, I have a whole new appreciation for just how difficult it is. I, as I, This actually comes from a, uh, a conversation that you guys had, I think, three years ago here at Aspen, but about the trajectory of the art, specifically music, um, in the black community. So, I mean, the, the, the movement from Strange Fruit to the nihilism of gangster rap to, I think we've probably returned to party rap, I guess, in 2016. Um, but also the reality that we're, we're in a world where, you know, Beyonce is doing formation, you have Kendrick Lamar, and they perform at the BET Awards, simultaneous to Hamilton being one of the biggest hip-hop albums of, of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, where, do, where do you see that going, just as a consumer of, of entertainment and pop culture? Well, I love the richness of it and the, the avenues that are open to a range of artists. Uh, I, as a consumer, my love for music, I mean, first of all, my name is Melody, <laughs> and that is, that's not an accident. I mean, my, my mother in particular was a great lover of music. I started going to musicals when I was about four years old, literally. Um, and so I love everything from jazz to hip-hop to R&B to, to country to the blues. I mean, I love, love all, all of forms it. of music. Yeah. Um, and what I particularly enjoy is listening to an artist and seeing more artists who may be doing, you know, a particular genre is what they're known for, but when you listen, there's all the texture. And you realize they know classical, they know jazz, they know blues, and if you're really listening, it, and you can access all of that. And you can hear the fact that they are such great students of music. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm enjoying the fact that there's so much opportunity and there's so much to listen to and also hopeful that there will be more in the same way we were talking about TV and, and uh, the movies and, and the theater providing images, there will be more and more in terms of the positive imagery that comes from music. I think you're right. I think it was a really interesting point too about where you see the different layers and textures of people drawing from various genres. Um, because unlike when we were kids, mm-hmm. where you you know you had to go buy a tape or a CD yeah. or tape things <laughs> off the radio, you know kids can pull from literally the entire history of music is at their fingertips via their phones. Um, and I'm excited by the generation that sort of grows up with all of that sort of multi-varied access, and then is create like sort of consuming it, processing it, and then creating their own version of whatever it is they want to tell, mm-hmm. uh, which makes you optimistic. I don't know. Um, And I think the other, and we we are talking about Hamilton as everyone a lot, but what I also loved was using that particular genre and being able to pack so much more into that play. Yeah, it's not a hip-hop musical. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It is pitched as such, but they've literally covered the entire history of U.S. music in the span of two and a half hours. Exactly. And then, again, all all the, t- the texture that yeah. was there and, and knowing the history and it was just you know, brilliant for all those reasons. Yeah. 
I feel like I should have a big closing question. <laughs> um, here, you know, let, me, let, me, let me ask a question differently. Uh, and I ask this somewhat selfishly because it's actually what I, what I would most like to know when I go back to Los Angeles to work in the film and television business. What can the film industry do concretely um, to best help build community? There isn't just one thing, but there are many things that can be done concretely. So, for example, and I think about this with regard to artists, um, there's a program that I was recently talking to the education uh, director for uh, the August Wilson uh, monologue competition. And they bring together young people that learn a monologue and they are in competition to ultimately compete, I think, in New York nationally. What that experience provides to young people, uh, the discipline, the self-confidence in terms of public speaking, learning the history that's learned because of August Wilson's series, series, and particularly August Wilson, um, all of those things contribute to uh, a kind of educational experience um, an opportunity for personal growth and development and a set of skills that are inevitably extremely useful for those individuals. Um, I look at um, institutions, and I, again, I'm thinking about Richmond, um, so many institutions that are now forming the, uh, the foundation or the four corners for community and economic development um, and being very conscious of where those institutions go. So they don't just sit um, in one part of town, um, but they are expanded to all parts of town. I think about the person who leads the public art work, arts work in Richmond, a strategy that's now being developed that will soon be deployed to bring art and visual art to all parts of the city and at the same time, for example, create safer places of the city. So she talks about the fact, okay, this is a place where we know kids in the winter will get off the bus and it gets dark. So how do we use art and light to make this a safer space for these young people and contribute um, to the growth of the community? And I can go on and on and on. Some of the things my husband and I are thinking about and starting to talk to people about doing so there are myriad numbers of, of ways that artists can contribute to what I think is one of the, if not the greatest crisis we have, which is to the elimination, the eradication of poverty and the development of communities into safe, vibrant places where people of all incomes want to live and work and play. I guess we should leave it there. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Melanie. It thank is you. truly an honor. Um, thank you. Thank you. What a pleasure. Enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm Thelma Golden, the director and curator at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and I'm here to participate on several different panels in the arts track. My own particular uh, area of focus is contemporary art and artists of African descent. But here I'm getting to think about my own work in the context of art and communities.
Well, I'm on several different panels. Uh, one of them is about the way in which museums are looking at diversity. Another is titled The Gatekeepers, talking about the way in which culture moves into the world. I am on my way at this very second to moderate a conversation with the artist Theaster Gates, who in his art practice has kind of redefined the space of how an artist can work within the context of community. And then I am on a fourth panel about um, culture and cities. I'm just glad to be here and be able to have art enter into these amazing conversations about culture at this moment. I'm Franklin Leonard, founder of The Blacklist and host of The Blacklist Table Reads podcast, and I am very excited today to be joined by DeRay McKesson, organizer, outspoken voice in favor of equality on many fronts, but specifically the Black Lives Matter movement. And as of yesterday, newly announced Chief of Human Capital for the Baltimore City Public Schools. Welcome. It's good to be here. And I, you know, this is the second time I met Franklin in two days. So I only know him on Twitter. So this is awesome um, to have this conversation. I'm excited. Yeah, well, I've been a longtime fan because of Twitter and many, many other things. I've sort of based, I'm, I'm going to base all the conversations that I have as sort of part of the Aspen Institute's podcast around this idea of, of the arts and specifically the popular arts and um, being an integral part of progress and the social fabric and political fabric. And I have to imagine that you have thoughts on this question. But in, to put a very fine point on it, how can popular culture, specifically movies because that's my world, but generally, do better to advance the cause of equality in America? Yeah, I think about, when, when I think about art, um, I think about art as both a window and a mirror, right? A window sort of helping us imagine new possibilities and sort of think about the world anew, and then a mirror helping us reflect on like what, uh, what people's lived reality is. Um, and, I, and I worry sometimes that there are artists who like don't, who think of our only as like this entertainment space right. that is not that is like removed from like this larger context right uh, and I think we have started to see some artists like Beyonce I think what's powerful about Beyonce's uh, album especially in the context of blackness is not not only that it's like catchy and like awesome right, exactly. but that she is somebody who seemingly has everything to lose by being right. quote this black um, and she did it and it's awesome right and, and like she's the selling more out she theoretically has to lose the more she seems to be embracing her blackness which I think is very exciting as well it's, or publicly embracing her blackness yes. or like in her art Absolutely right. and like uh, I'm hopeful that that will be a model for people yeah. uh, you think about Kendrick you think about so you think about Jesse Williams' speech at the BT Awards as somebody right. who's like being really thoughtful about how do I use my platform? Yeah. Because of influence, you know, people look to influencers for like signals for and cues. Everything. And most importantly for language, you know? This idea of like yep. what Jesse did that was powerful was not only tell the truth, but he said it in a way that people are like, got it. You're like, yes. Yeah. And I can like repeat that and I can like have that be in the culture. Well, here's my question about Jesse's speech, because I think we thought it was really interesting. There were a lot of things he said that were direct criticisms of many people in that room. Yeah. And there was, I think, a great theater around the public embrace of it. But I think that there's a lot of stuff, I, I think specifically of that the hereafter is a hustle statement, that I think upon second examination, some folks that initially said, right on, brother, are going to be, are going to wonder about it. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Because um, it was a pretty pointed thing, but it wasn't just pointed at other it was also sort of directed inward as well i think that is true it's tempered by this belief though uh, like i say this often that two beliefs one is that 
more people want to do good work than know what to do and more people yeah. do uh, want to do good work than want to be members and i could see in that crowd and i think about so many influencers i know who like totally want to help out right the only way they've traditionally thought about helping out is like giving money that's like the only way that they like think about it um and then the question for us as organizers becomes like how do we help people think about using their platform and gifts differently mm -hmm. and i could see people in that room like Jesse's speech being actually like this liberatory moment where they're like, finally somebody said it in public, right? And like maybe I can start acting differently, and like there's this public um, embracing of this like different way, you know? Right. And if that's the reaction that he gets for doing it, maybe I'm not actually risking as much as I thought I was by doing the same thing. Or if I risk it, people will stand with me, right? I won't risk right. it alone. Right. Exactly. So I think about like I think about some people I know who are major stars who are like, Dre, I'm never gonna tweet about race because I'm worried about like the third tweet. Like I'll say something that I know to be true. Right. Somebody says something back, I sort of respond, then I'm like lost, right? And like, how do we actually build a community where people can, uh, like they know enough to be able to embrace these conversations, but also like can grow. And I think about some people who I will not name, who like have made Instagram posts about like black and black crime. And you're like, you're a major, stop it. Like stop, you, you totally like have become this like distraction. It's like right. not very helpful. And like, I'm sure if we talk to you, you'd be like, okay, I get it. Right. But like, there's some people we want to be quiet for right now right. until like they actually get it. But I do think there's an interesting question and opportunity for us with artists. Like, can we build a community of artists where they can struggle through these things in a space that is safe for them? Right. That will also then go like seep into their art. You know what I mean? Right. So how, what does that space look like? Oh, I have so many ideas. You know, I, this is, I want to build this at one point, but. Yeah, we, this is something that we need to talk about like offline too. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I'm curious, like. You don't have to say like this is what it looks like exactly, but like what are some traits of that yeah, space? Yeah, I, I think that if in my if if I could imagine, uh, like you invite eight artists or eight people with influence uh, artists, hopefully uh, for like a weekend, like they have to commit like two days or something, right. and you pair them up with like top scholars, uh, have a dope facilitator. Uh, with like clear outcomes around like you want people to like do presentations stuff that they would never ever do uh, in another setting because it would just be a problem right. but like you create the space like that they read the critical stuff and you and that's like the win right there the win is like building a new community around shared values of equity and justice mm -hmm. and like I think that we will actually see that like seep into people's art the hard part is like there are very few institutions in the country that can be conveners in that way right, right. the White House can do it Harvard could like someone can do it right now. Right, right now. <laughs> like uh, somebody that would give you an invitation that people like could not refuse, you know. Right. And like, what if you get like a Carrie Mae Weems, a Kendrick, um, a Rashida Jones, right. you know, a Quincy? Like you get this unlikely good Trevor Noah people who get it. Yeah, Ava, Nate. Right. Yeah. And and like some of the people sort of more on the like not, who don't publicly talk about it all the time, right. but totally care. Right. JJ right. Abrams. Like you get these people who like. Yeah. JJ is a great example. Who like wanna? JJ's he's not doing example. like a great. He's not gonna do a speech about it. No, but, but he, he has, But he's also gonna say, you know what? Everyone we interview is now gonna be like the interview list is gonna be representational. Yeah. Which he's is, gonna ask that one question. Yeah. that's like, tell me about da da da. Yeah. And like, but we need to beat off about how do we inform his perspective? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, I think that we can actually. That this is the opportunity to build a space like that. Right. Um, that is like really authentic, but really challenges people in a space that's safe. You know, because if it's. You know, if it's Beyonce and, you know, Kendrick or whatever, none of them are going to leave the room being like, well, Beyonce said, like, everybody has too right. much to lose. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and I could see people needing the safety of those spaces. All right, so we're going to wrap it up there. DeRay, thank you both for everything that you do and for sitting down and talking with us today. It's great to be here. I'm uh, Kilian Kleinschmidt. 
coming from Vienna, Austria, German, um, and I'm a refugee expert. I'm talking about the new ways of how to deal with the concept of aid, to, to move away from the idea that we deal with victims when we talk about disasters, that we uh, need to fundamentally change the way of how we actually share our resources, um, that charity is not the way forward, that there is enough in this world for everyone, and uh, it's just a question of how we make it available. And there I'm seeing fantastic opportunities. Uh, we just just heard a few minutes about ago about the fact that 40 billion devices will be connected in, in four years, four or five years from now. And this is how knowledge needs to be connected. Uh, resources include knowledge, money, technologies, uh, best practice um, and so on. I used to work for 25 years with refugees. I was out in the field managing refugee camps, refugee crises from Congo to Somalia to Sri Lanka to Pakistan, places like that. Um, and so now I'm, I'm building up, in fact, um, a, let's say new, new ways um, to deal with that in a different way. This is Franklin Leonard, founder of The Blacklist and host of The Blacklist Table Reads podcast. And I am joined, very excitingly, uh, and joined by Sarah Lewis. Uh, she is an author, a curator, an assistant professor at Harvard University. She has also had curatorial positions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Tate Modern in London, and has taught at Yale University's School of Art. She's been published in The New Yorker and Aperture, been pretty much everywhere. I mean, the, the, the insane thing is that this is a very small partial list of uh, what Sarah has accomplished. And even more uh, spectacularly, she is a, an extraordinary friend. I've had the honor of knowing her for almost 20 years now, which is staggering to me in and of itself. There's really no one else I'd rather close this series of conversations about uh, the arts and uh, culture and politics than you. So I'm gonna, ask, I'm gonna start by asking sort of the same question that I've asked to, to everyone, but I expect the conversation will sort of take itself in whatever direction it needs to. How can the arts, specifically the popular arts, become a more integral part of the fabric of social progress in America? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Franklin. It's, it's such an honor to be invited onto this podcast, and I have such great respect for your work, but as a, as a friend, it just means so much to see the extraordinary things that you're doing, so thank you. This conversation, I think, is crucial um, for where we are as a society right now. The first step towards understanding how we can integrate the arts into our social fabric for progress and for justice is first by recognizing how constitutively important it has been historically, right? As I, I've written, America has really been a project of this nexus of vision and justice and art and citizenship from its very inception. So you can think of this um, in terms of historic movements, oftentimes connected to race that help us to see this. From the abolition of slavery to the civil rights movement to the current day, there are moments in which representational justice has been what's moved the needle. You know, there are moments in which actually being able to picture graphic inhumanity has been more impactful than rational argument alone, right, for affecting change. Um, so when I say representational justice, I mean I mean the arts writ large, right, whether it's a visual art or, or music or performance. So the first step is recognizing that. And I think in the U.S., we, we are very, I think, adolescent 
kind of civilization. We're very young, so we don't always honor the role of the arts in the ways that older countries do. So I think the first step is recognizing its constitutive role. Can I interrupt you right there? Mm -hmm. I, I, you introduced me recently to a Frederick Douglass speech that I think is sort of critical, critical vertex around which to have that conversation. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just sort of educate the world on that. That's great. I wanted to start macro. Let's go right into this this kind of incisive point. Well, I think it's just on the yeah, historical exactly. front. It's a sort of no-brainer to bring this up. So Absolutely. I hope it, I hope you I hope it's not an unfair interruption. It's perfect. It's perfect. I didn't want to start with Frederick Douglass. Once you do, you almost don't talk about anything else because it's uh, yeah. it's so synoptic of this whole topic. Frederick Douglass is known for being an abolitionist and incredible order. What people don't know is how focused he was on the role of pictures for progress, as he put. He gave this speech during the Civil War, which he rewrote three times over the course of his life, about the role that photography in particular and pictures had on the hearts and minds of citizens in that country as it related to changing people's perceptions of race in particular. You know, And it was a speech that confused the audience when he delivered it, expecting in 1861 and then in 65 when he re-delivered the speech to hear more about combat and uh, as a way to end the war. Instead, he was focused on the role of pictures. Right? Right. <laughs> and yeah, you, you expect an abolitionist at the beginning and at the end of the Civil War to have more pressing concerns. Right, right. But for him, the, the most pressing concern was the image. Exactly. And he even in the speech, he said it might seem an indulgence or impertinent to ask your attention to a lecture on pictures at a, <laughs> a time of sort of union-severing fracture. But he continued. And he, he did so for reasons that I think we're starting to live out now and understand now. That moment during the Civil War is so connected to this moment of image saturation that we're in right now because of the force of technology to spread what are not only pictures as images, but events as images to us. So you experience Ferguson through pictures, Flint through pictures, any uprisings in Baltimore through pictures, right? And there's a, a question about desensitization that can occur, but it still goes back to Douglas because he was interested in the force, the what I would call aesthetic force of a picture and its ability to affect a kind of critical investment in what's happening around you. So he's he looms large over this. It's a long forgotten speech, though, and so it's important yeah, to bring I, it up. I had no knowledge of it until literally you introduced me to it. And, you know, the preoccupation of my career has been the image and progress, and yet it was lost to me. Yeah. So, okay, so, that, so one was recognize the role it's already played in our history. Yes. What's two? Uh, I'm of the mind though, and some people might differ on this, I'm of the mind that we need to be able to honor artists as truth tellers and embrace that function that they serve. Um, but not, there's some people who I think are really focused on commissioning works or creating works that in, in a way that's more instrumental, relate to social justice. I'm instead interested in letting artists do their work and us honoring the truth-telling function that they serve. Um, you can't predict when a Shepherd Ferry poster you know, is going to galvanize a presidential election, but you want to be able to support the pipeline of resources that can create a Shepherd Ferry uh, to feel that he has enough agency to, to do something like that. So I'm, I'm less kind of prescriptive and, or, or interested in propaganda, and I'm more interested in creating a kind of sat sort of an environment that supports the development of the independence of thought and criticality of artists in the society. It begs the question though about the sort of distribution and marketing of the content that is produced in that environment. And how and how how do you think about I mean as a curator certainly I imagine you have 
you think a lot about that. But I just, and, and then sort of separate from that in sort of the world of, of movie making, which is a very different system of marketing and distribution, how do we best share and how do we best uh, promote the work that may be most relevant to advancing that sort of progress? Or is that not yes. the right question? It's a, it's a fantastic question. We're in a moment right now where I think we're dissolving many of the boundaries that exist as platforms for all these different uh, art forms, right? Um, whether it's a museum or performance or, or, or a movie, I think technology is, is blurring the boundaries through which we can experience these different events. Uh, I think the way that we do this, the way that we are able to highlight an, a moment or, or work that can move the needle on issues of social justice by creating um, enough stillness around it, enough attention to it, that it gets us to a point of immersive concentration. Right. That's what I hope we can start to do more of. Can you find the term immersive concentration for me? I mean, I could, I could probably surmise what it means, but I've never heard it before, and I suspect it has deeper meaning than what I'm interpreting. I have to say it's inspired by my colleague uh, Jennifer Roberts, my colleague up at Harvard, an art historian. Uh, she, she has her students look for three hours at a painting at a time as one of the assignments um, as a mode of decelerization. deceleration. Excuse me, my altitude sickness is affecting me up here. Uh, she has her students look at this painting for three hours as a mode of deceleration, really to get us to slow down. I think that it's, it's hard right now because of the speed through which technology brings yeah. things to us. So immersive concentration, I think, is finding a place of productive stillness. Um, and Douglas spoke to this idea, too, in this speech. He had a term for this kind of event that happens when you're so struck by an image or something in the arts. He, he thought that a thought picture can arise from it. It's as, you know, as if you're, you're conjuring something in that moment. That's what happens by immersive concentration. That's, I think, what happens when people are so galvanized by what they see in front of them that it can affect action, right? For example, when Eric Gardner's killing was disseminated as a viral video, right, that created a moment of immersive concentration. Right. You know, people were still and understood the inhumanity of that. And it resulted in the march and the movement. It might not yet have resulted in policies that we need. Yeah. Um, and that's a question that I would have for perhaps your other guests, you know. Yeah. How, how did then they harness the energy that can come from that collective intensity? I think it's a question that remains unanswered, honestly, even in those conversations. I'd like you to close by making sure that people know about the vision and justice issue. So can you introduce that and then tell them, I think it's the actual issue proper is sold out, is it? Really? Yeah. So you may, if it is even possible to track it down, you may can tell people where to get it. But there is the online platform for it, which I think people should definitely explore. So introduce it and let people know where they can, can find it. So Aperture, the photography institution, uh, asked me to guest edit this special issue of their magazine. And I've chosen the theme Vision and Justice, which looks at uh, art and citizenship and the way in which it's contributed to shifting our understanding of race in, in the U.S., specifically as it relates to African-American life. So the issue aggregates an incredible set of writers, poets, scholars, and photographers from Margot Jefferson and Claudia Rankin, Teju Cole to... Uh, Carrie Mae Weems, Deborah Willis, uh, Dina Lawson, Latoya Ruby Frazier, you name it, Skip Gates, um, myself included, and many other scholars and, and poets. It's such an honor to have put together this issue to, I think, create a, a way of talking about the role that the arts have, have played in, in citizenship um, as a document that I hope will create and continue conversation um, for quite a while. 
And where is it online? It's online at aperture.org. There you go. So you can you can pick it and, up and, there. And, and is, if someone wanted to try to track down one of the few remaining issues that may be on newsstands, local newsstands that would have Aperture. And in fact, Barnes and Nobles does carry it. There so you they go. Can go. All yeah. right. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for doing this with us and for for being an amazing friend. Thank you too, Franklin. You're the best. Appreciate it. That's our podcast takeover host and Aspen Ideas Festival presenter, Franklin Leonard. He hosts the Blacklist Table Reads podcast and founded The Blacklist. You heard his discussions with other festival presenters on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Watch for other episodes this week that feature more festival presenters taking over the podcast. Journalists Maria Inahosa, Perry Pellis, and Emily Yaffe, and comedian and radio host Pete Dominic are interviewing festival presenters and experts in a variety of topics. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and myself, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thank you for listening.